0: Welcome to the Awakening Podcast. You can find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org. We're also on BitChute, not on YouTube. Depends on what we discuss today. We probably won't be talking about the the Vax or Max, so we should be able to put it on uh, my personal YouTube channel as well. I've got four other podcasts, and I'm a podcasting coach. You'll find everything on bio.link forward slash podcaster. Today, my guest is the author of seven books. Please welcome Charles Smith.
1: Hey, don't worry. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah,
0: no problem. You might let the audience know. Who's Charles?
1: Charles is a a father, first and foremost, to two great kids. Um, I'm a seven-time author. I'm a survivor of a suicide attempt, 30 years in addiction recovery. What else? almost almost 50 years of post-traumatic stress disorder and just survivor of the kind of life where people i i tell my story and people are like shocked that i'm still here Mm. so that's me
0: (laughs) no and i like because obviously you know researching for this so i know that it started off at a young age so you might just kind of bring us through your journey and uh, as it went by,
1: yeah, yeah. I started out like the uh normal kid, the best ki- dressed kid in town. I had everything I wanted, and then my father lost everything. I don't know how that went with him and my grandfather to their graves, I have no idea how, but then, um. At that, when I was six years old, my mother passed away of drugs and alcohol, mixing pills and alcohol, and then when I was, then my father moved me and my sister around literally 10 homes in 11 years, and that's one of my books, 10 Homes in 11 Years. It describes that whole time of my life. and um
0: and just on that that, like because i just know from people like that's very hard at that age because when you know you're moving or you just move to build friendships and everything in that area, and i don't know where they're putting you different schools but i must have been in itself i mean obviously losing your mother at at a very young age but to be traveling and constantly changing you know it must have been really difficult for both of you
1: no yeah it was really hard for me and my me and my sister and i'm I'm sure my dad too. But um yeah, we uh I repeated the second grade because I didn't go to school enough cuz of all the moving around we did. And um I I remember that like the last place we lived was just horrible. Like, um, destitute. We... My father had a job as a gas attendant. And we lived in what I guess I would call a shack. Like, my my father and I shared a bed. We had a a mattress, no box spring. Our clothes were in cardboard boxes. We had a fold-out table for a dining room table. We had a, uh, you know, one of those dinner trays for a TV stand, and was, if I remember correctly, our bathroom floor was concrete. Yeah, just crazy. crazy. Yeah, and my father died in Van Horn, Texas. I still remember that day. I woke up and he was making coffee and I could I could see outside the bedroom window. I mean the bedroom doorway and he something was off. I couldn't tell what it was. But I I went out the door hugged him and told him I wanted to stay home from school that day because I didn't tell him I thought something was wrong, but I just said, I want to stay home from school. He told me I missed enough and I had to go. And then at that time, I went to the bathroom, stuck my finger down my throat so I could appear sick. And then I went back to him and told him, hey, I'm sick. We went to a store and he passed out on me in the store after I um after I did stay home and my sister went to school. And the store clerk knew him and knew that he was a diabetic, so gave him some orange juice and that revived him. That brought him back to normal. Then we we, we went back home and he passed out on me again. I ran over to my neighbor's house, got her, and then we went over to, uh, we brought him over to the local hospital, and he died on a on a gurney with me holding his hand.
0: Oh. Mm. That is such a trauma for, you know, 11 years of age you were at that stage. Yeah, yep, yeah,
1: yep. Yeah, yeah. And then... um We moved back here to Massachusetts, I could actually see through this wall in front of me, I could see the house that I grew up in, or the house that my mother passed away in, and that I was in for the first few years of my life.
0: And, I mean, after both traumas, because, I mean, you were still a very young child, so did you continue schooling then after that, or what happened?
1: Yeah, my family here put me and my sister into school and I had uh, I had psychiatric help because I was severely in shock. My sister told me that I I didn't speak for six months after we got back home. She told me that I didn't even talk to her. I just didn't talk to anybody. And I did have some uh some friends that I still have to this day after coming back home. I met and those bonds I think helped me through all the years of uh you know school and everything
0: and is your sister younger or older than you?
1: My sister's two years older than me, yep. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was weird because she didn't seem as affected by it, maybe because of the age, but I seemed to be more affected by, and I, you know, she was in school while I was there, you know, with my father, so she didn't witness that.
0: You know, I think it... the trauma, because usually when you're a young child, you're kind of closer to the mother or till you're about the age you were, six or seven, then you get a huge bond with your father. And the fact that you were moving around, but it was like your only role model as such. So you then last the closest person at a very young age. So it's understandable that you, you know, was, you know, yeah, stuff in that talk. and not
1: yeah. it Yeah, if it was anything like me and my son are now, then... We're inseparable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I often look at him and I think of where I was Mm -hmm. when I was 10. And it's going to be tough when he becomes 11, I think, because that's going to be the gear that, you know, how old I was when my father passed away.
0: Mm -hmm. And And when you were then... It was your uncle, I believe. Was it your uncle and grandfather that were looking after you both then after that? yeah.
1: Well, my, my grandmother and grandfather were my legal guardians, but they didn't have room in their house. So we moved next door to them, and that was my aunt and uncle. My At one time, my whole family lived on one street.
0: And did this... Yeah. Date or did it was there anyone that was kind of trying to provide help? I like it's hard at that age, like, but I, I don't know. Were they actually doing things like that to, to try to help you at that age, you know? Like me, outside, I don't mean with the parents, but I mean medical help or psychiatrists to help from the serious trauma that you went through.
1: My family, uh, put me through therapy, you know, they, they put me through a couple of years yes. of psychology with a therapist, I think, and it, I don't recall if it helped or not, but I do recall I pushed away any form of uh, parenting or anything like that. I just didn't want it.
0: I mean, I'd say unconsciously it was like you didn't want to get close because anyone you were close to was actually, you know, passing on. So what happened then after that, like as you were getting you know, into your teens?
1: As so I was getting into my teens, me and my friends got into drinking and smoking pot and smoking cigarettes and stuff like that. And I started hanging out with my, my cousin who um, was into more serious stuff. And uh, at that time, I started doing the same thing. He was, like, my my idol growing up. So he had, like, a woman on each arm and, you know, the, the biggest truck in my city and money flowing out of his pockets. So I idolized him. So anything he was doing I was like, Oh, if that's what it takes to make it, then that's what it takes. <laughs> so that's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> so I started doing uh crack cocaine and cocaine. And yeah, I partied with him, partied with uh the entire like Worcester is made up of seven hills. Seven sections, and like Grafton Hill is where I was brought up, and we would all to everybody on the hill would get together and party in different areas, so we would do that all all the time, you know after school, sometimes during school. <laughs> On the where, where
0: where was your headspace? Like, were you able to sleep, or were you just constantly thinking of this, or did you kind of just kind of isolate it and just kind of closed it off as if it ne- never happened?
1: At that time, my mind was racing, and I needed something to slow it down, and that's what I used to slow it down. Especially in high school, I would always uh smoke pot before before school even started every day you know just to get my mind numb you know and i would i never drank during school but i would always smoke during during school before school and lunch after school you know i I tried to do whatever I could to numb my head because it was—it never went away. Mm. Yeah. and because
0: I know then that you—you uh, you went towards—you uh, got into the military. But what was the journey to to deciding to go get, get, go into the military?
1: Well, at that point, I—I I was doing one year of postgraduate high. Well, in my high school, it was a trade school, so I went for painting and decorating, and then I I went into automotive after that, and I went one year in automotive, and then I dropped out, and then I got really just, I didn't want to do anything, but drink and do crack and so my aunt told me you know I have a choice get out get a job and don't come back I was over 18 she had the right I needed the tough love you know so I um went out and I I joined the military I um My father was in the military, his father was in the military, my grandfather was in the military, on my mother's side, was in the military. So I have a long line of military people. So I chose the military life for a few years. And
0: And were you detoxing at that stage or is it you got into the military and then you had to start detoxing?
1: I didn't really detox. I mean, I detoxed enough to pass their drug screens to get in. To get in, <laughs> but I really didn't um, detox until I was in basic training. Yeah, and that was my detox, which was really difficult because. Um, it would uh it it wasn't just the mind it was the body too like with crack cocaine it breaks down the body you're skinny and you know I, I, I went in and And
0: what's doing... the difference because like I've heard of cocaine where you're sniffing the cocaine what's crack cocaine the difference between cocaine and crack cocaine it's the same thing or
1: you smoke crack
0: okay. cocaine right.
1: yeah yeah how we did it we cooked it with bacon powder and water in a spoon and you you cooked it that way and then you put it into a pipe and you smoked it and it went straight up into you just i i would imagine just like uh sniffing it but yeah and um my body was so skinny I mean, I was a skinny person as it was back then, but then with adding that, I... to do 20 push-ups was a chore for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, doing everything that they wanted me to do, it literally almost killed me. And, But I, I made it through with some really good help from a couple of the fellow soldiers. Like uh this guy Dagger, we call him Dagger and this guy Hull. They would um they would get down with me every night and do push ups and they would uh you know, push me all the time to do more and do more and do more and I finally got to the point where I was able to uh pass the P T test and you know, I'll hang with everybody instead of falling behind so yeah a handful of people knew what i was going through they they were two of them that knew what i was going through
0: and in the yeah. is is there many similar circumstances of people that have kind of gone through trauma going through trauma and they look for that as an escape or is there a percentage of people that are kind of take the route that you did
1: i I as far as the drugs and alcohol, yeah, I would say definitely i I work for uh aware recovery care, which is an i hat program and I hat stands for in home addiction treatment and we go into the people's homes and we work with the client for an entire year and we um we help them in their first year of recovery and the majority of them have some sort of trauma that they, uh, they masked, you know, with alcohol or some other drug. Yeah. Cause when you don't want to feel what you're, what you're feeling inside, you put a mask on
0: and, um... Because you know. I, I know that you, you, you got into the carving as well, which is self. Was that before that or after that? When did that start happening?
1: That was after the military. That was in 2000, right before uh, the year of nine eleven. Um But my uncle and my grandfather died a month apart. Yeah, and my um
0: and they would have been basically your next closest people after you'd lost your parents, I'm assuming, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well father figures. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they were it was like losing my father again twice. Yeah, and I I uh felt I started feeling regret. Yeah, you know, because of all the years that I wasted. Because I was pushing I was busy so busy pushing them away all these years that I never let them in, you know, and i um uh, when they died, that all came rushing towards me, you know, and I didn't want to feel that either that all that guilt, so I instead of going back to drugs and alcohol, I started cutting on myself to feel something other than what I was feeling.
0: And like basically that's just like getting a razor blade and going to a certain level that it's yeah. not requiring stitches, but at the same so you're kinda of inflicting pain to stop the pain in your head, I'm assuming. Is that the kind of right. way you
1: know? Exactly, Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And to this day, I can hardly see any of the marks. I mean, so I've seen some people that use knives, and you can see all the scars on their arms and stuff. I used a razor blade, so a lot of them you can't see. I actually have a a cross on my on my chest that you can barely see that I I carved, and um, but after that, I decided to just end my life and I took a bottle of sleeping pills one night and I um, carved the words F you world in my arm and I went to sleep and my friends found me and I, uh, I was rushed to the hospital and stomach pumped and all that. The doctor said that he was amazed that I was alive still. You know, and then I I went to, um, uh Brockton, Mass. They have a VA hospital there, and which has a psychiatric unit on it. And I I went there and then they sent me to a place in Boston that was, it was a shelter because my friends wouldn't let me go back to where it was because they they didn't know what I was going to do. So, I ended up homeless for a little bit until I went into a shelter, still homeless. You know, a lot of the people that you see on the streets, they might be, you know, living in shelters at night, but they're still homeless during the day. You know. And is it
0: because I know, especially with vets, it's massive in um in America the amount of people that are actually homeless. Is it a case that when you do find a place, there's obviously limited in numbers, but is it a case of you must get out in the morning, and you can't hang out there, or are you allowed actually? Yeah. Yeah, have to get out.
1: Unless you unless you do chores, for them, then you can stay in until you're done with your chores. But a lot of places like right now will start filling up because it's getting cold out. And then in the in the spring and summer they'll trickle out, and people will start living in tents and stuff like that again and it's a ongoing cycle but a lot of them need more help than what's out there i mean 22 veterans die of suicide approximately 22 veterans die of suicide every day because of post traumatic stress you know and it's it's horrible this the stats are just phenomenal, you know, and I don't know what the stats are of homeless veterans, but it's just, it breaks my heart. I mean, we, there's, uh, a couple of different, um, veterans organizations here in Worcester that do whatever they can for veterans, but it's, you know, it's, it's too, um, it's too much. the the need outweighs the uh the amount of help that we can give. You know, like even during Christmas time I adopted a uh a veteran family. You know, so I can I can buy uh their kid and their Christmas gifts for for Christmas. I have a fourteen year old boy that I'm gonna buy all his gifts for, so he has a Christmas. Because the family's down and out, and I've been there myself, where I've had to ask for that help too.
0: And when you were homeless, what, well, where was your head? Can you remember what was like? What was going through your mind?
1: I was in a weird space in my head. I went through like a gothic stage. Like with painted fingernails and yeah, all wearing all black. I was just in like a a dead probably a dead phase just existing. You know. And then I at the same time I, I wanted to get out of that phase because seeing the homeless veterans That was the one thing that really opened my my eyes, you know, to not being alone. Like, when I was in that first shelter, I was like, you know, these people are suffering as much as you are. And they need help as much as you do. So you're not alone. Yeah, you know, and and then I I went through that phase, and I I, I went to like a um, change of religion. Like a lot of my life, I grew up uh, Roman Catholic, and I I would have rather um, go up and see God with my boxing gloves on than go up and see God you know praying because of the way my life was. So I, I needed that change. You know, so I, I always wore a uh, a pentacle because I liked the band, uh, Motley Crue, and that was their symbol. And um, I banded to a guy that told me about uh, how that symbol represents a Wiccan religion. So I went through that for a few years and that actually helped me out these days. I believe if, if you think that, you know, that thing in front of you is going to get you through the day and that's your God, then I'm not going to argue with you on that point. (laughs) You you know, it's whatever gets you through the day. I, I believe in, now I believe in God from God to Zeus to Jesus to them all. They all, they all, to me, they all exist, and I'm no one. I'm just a mere, mo- mere mortal. I'm not going to tell them that they don't exist. You, you know, but um, yeah. Now, I think I, I really needed that phase, 'cause that was like my crucible, because it changed me in a lot of different ways.
0: And then, 'cause obviously. <laughs> You know you're you have to make such a ton around how like go, going through that where you kind of had the religion that was kind of helping you it at that time and then how did you kind of get on your feet and get yourself that it's you're helping and we touch on that as a where you're helping people because you know the trauma and how to overcome it
1: yeah well i i got out of my homeless situation i got work and i was living in a shelter while i was working and i eventually moved on from that life, which, you know, took a long time. It doesn't happen overnight. And then um, I started running programs, like, uh, I learned everything I could about PTSD. And because once I was diagnosed with it in my 30s, so I was undiagnosed with it for like 25 years. But once I was diagnosed with it, I'm like, okay, I'm going to learn everything I can about this so I know how to live my life, you know. So I I did that, and then I started running programs, um, talks about post-traumatic stress in different places. And then I was asked about... Um, positive positive thinking. So I eventually opened up a program about that. And then I opened up a program about practical awareness, situational awareness. And those three actually became my first three books because when my son was born, I had to make a decision. I wasn't making, those were done as a nonprofit, those programs. And for, like, the first five years as a nonprofit, you don't make a whole lot of money. So I had to make a decision, you know, on supporting my family or keep doing that, which was not really a decision, you know. So to keep my my information out there, I made those three programs books. And those were the first three books that I wrote. And then... um after that I I vote uh four more books after that. And I'm working on number five. So that's And I'm I'm also uh republishing all of my books except for Ten Homes in Eleven Years.
0: And I've seen reviews, you know, there's a, a lot of five star comments, basically saying how much it's helped them. So I suppose maybe guide it through because, I mean, obviously, you've had such a traumatic, you know, journey. And just from talking to a lot of people that I know myself, everybody's got their own journey, everyone's got their own battles. And it's a case of how we can actually overcome that obviously you've done it and you're writing to help and i know that you have the workbook inside and the book itself so you might kind of guide us through something that might help those that are listening
1: well i know i'm like post-traumatic stress um and addiction recovery it's all about coping skills i found that it's like the main key to all of wellness is coping skills. Like um, for me, it's yoga and it's meditation and it's martial arts and going for walks in the wilderness. You know, for other people, it's other things. You got to find your own coping skills. You know, we we can't. Um, I can guide someone to find them for themselves, but I can't tell you which ones to do. And that's what my books are pretty much all about is guiding you to um, finding your own coping skills, to finding solutions to the problems that you face that you know I faced that I read that I put in the books. And then I I put like um ways for you to think about what you've uh, what you just read. And one thing I'm going to be doing different in the republishing is um, I'm going to ask people to have a journal with them when they when they read the book. and because the reason I'm doing that is because a lot of the uh, like um, libraries and stuff, they wouldn't take my books in because of the lines that were in the books. They considered it empty space. Yeah, yeah. So, what I'm going to do instead is tell the reader to have a journal with them. And there's going to be, like, icons. Alright, this is where you want to list want to think about this and write down your answer you know so it's it's like a workbook still but instead of putting the answers in the books you're going to put them in a journal okay. yeah, yeah. It's
0: strange that uh, the libraries were doing that because at the end of the day you know it's there to help people and i mean the people that are using the libraries Aren't, sometimes they don't have the money to actually be buying the book and they can go to the library because obviously libraries around the world are either free or very cheap and it's a, yeah. it's a shame that they were doing that.
1: Yeah, there's libraries and I want to say was it no, not Barnes & Noble some other bookstores too were doing it I'm like no, we, we can't allow that because of the, the space in the books. So I'm like okay <laughs> the space is there for a reason you know and the space is probably the most important part of the book <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: yeah I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think why they would do that in the library, i presume it's because they're fair as somebody actually fills it in and then the next person is seen their information I don't know but yeah maybe yeah Yeah, but at least you know you're you're adjusting to make sure that they you know the next uh you know re-edition doesn't have that uh, issue
1: yeah yeah definitely yeah
0: and so it sounds basically that people just need to find their passion because I mean even especially in the last couple of years like people they're just coming home they're drained They're turning on the telly, they're grabbing the beer or whatever, and they're just chugging through life. Whereas when you, like you say, do the yoga, whether someone likes fishing, whether they like, you're just finding passions because when you're doing your passion, you're in a happy mode. And then when you come back, you're still happy because you've done something that's kind of, let's call it productive in the day. Whereas when you do it, you're just going into that negative spiral. And then when you're at home, you're just, your head is talking to you and you go through it. So it's just trying to get people because when you're, down in the dumps it's hard to actually see light at the end of the tunnel and at the end of the day it's trying to find your path. and sometimes you never know your passion because one the education system it kicks out music it kicks out art and all these things. and sometimes that can be the thing someone just painting and they, they t- sent they tend to get rid of all the creative things like the whole education system is organized to actually make people depressed that's the way i say it. like there's so many things okay. that they're doing Instead of the opposite.
1: Exactly, exactly. Like um,
0: one thing that comes
1: to mind is my book Awakening. And it um talks about how like money is not the uh, route to happiness. You know, I I talk about how um Robin Williams. And uh, you know, Chester Bennington and all different people that had all this money died of depression, you know. And it's like you sit back and you and a lot of people think, oh, well, they had all this money, why, why were they depressed? Well, because they didn't have the passion. Or oh, they, they didn't have this, so they didn't have that. You know, money 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 can't buy you love, and money can't buy you a lot of things.
0: <laughs> I think it was Jim Carrey said he wished everybody was uh you know had ten million or be successful because they'd realize that it's not what makes you happy.
1: Yes, definitely. Yep, yep. That was during a uh, speech at a college. Yes. Yep. Yep. That was an awesome speech, by the way. <laughs>
0: And because I know there was something else uh, that I just from doing the research and everything, there was CPTSD. What's that about?
1: Compounded PTSD or complex PTSD. Some people call it compounded, some people call it complex. But um, what that is, is this PTSD where, you know, You're in a war, and you get shot at, and, like, me, I was blown up in a tank. I was actually blown up in a tank. But, um, sometimes I gotta think that through. But I was. And I survived. But, um, yeah, compounded PTSD is, like, when, you know, you have like my mother's my mother's death my father's death this happened that happened being blown up being homeless being you know a home uh a suicide survivor this and you know everything gets i look at it like a, a layer cake with multiple layers you know and i th- i thought of that um like when i was in the VA – VA system fighting for uh, my um, service connected with for PTSD, and what service connected is is a pension that you get for the rest of your life because something happened in the military that affected you that's gonna affect you for the rest of your life. You know, like the tank explosion or being in Cuba. When, for six months like I was. What it is, is the VA system thinks that you're you have civilian PTSD and then you have military PTSD and they're separate. When in fact they're not, PTSD is PTSD is PTSD. And it just keeps on compiling on top of each other, compounding. So that's pretty
0: much what it is and like in the middle like when when you know when they were going to afghanistan iraq different places based on knowledge that's now available and exposure and everything and realizing the amount of corruption that's there and it's like sometimes making it look like someone else is the enemy when it's really organized in-house like that must be kind of traumatic for everybody as well to think that you're actually doing right. And then realizing the trauma and the murdering and all that <clears throat> of the country that was invaded and realizing, Hey, we were told a lie.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Like who knows what's really going on in Ukraine and, yeah, you know, unfortunately, I mean, From what I'm told, some of the pictures that you see on in the news aren't really happening. You know, I don't know if it's true or not, because I've I've, seen a lot. There
0: was a load of stuff they were showing pretending it was the war wasn't the war. I've had three different interviews, like the way I see it is both sides on the ground are actually suffering here and. I'd say the same side at the top is pulling the strings and just enjoying the whole uh, thing faring out. But I've had somebody, their house was bombed and they just left with the clothes on their back, a woman with four children. They stayed in a a friend of mine's house uh, for a week or so till they moved to another country. Then I had a, a guy, an American guy who actually went to the Polish border that was actually kind of helping, you know, the, the refugees coming in and and he was saying both sides, like there was being rape going on. And, but there was other times in like Lvov people are saying, Oh, it's terrible there. He said he went there. It was like a holiday place, like people (laughs) taking pictures and everything. Then I had a Russian guy on the show who was his wife was uh, from Crimea, I believe, and saying a totally different story again. So you're looking at the media, you're listening to this, but I know deep down, people are being hurt on the ground and there's an evil cabal at the top that's orchestrating mm-hmm. every single thing that's going on in the world but they're doing that as well and then they're creating hatred because people are you know I, I think it's the first time that one like with poland and a few other countries they didn't chuck uh refugees into a camp like a concentration camp it was like humanity they were kind of going hey come into my house but the other thing is it's probably the first time that a country didn't hate the other country as in the people on the, ground. just like I have friends that are Ukrainian. I have people that are Russian and I know a lot of them as well. They don't hate each other. You know, it's Fair. not a, as if, because like before there was times, you know, like say the Polish would hate the Germans or whatever. Like it's not like that now. And it's all, arcs. It's, it's sad to see it that, you know, <laughs> the people on the ground are in, they don't have the, you know, all the food and everything to, to have a normal life based on all the crap that's going on.
1: Hmm. Exactly. I believe that too, like there's I I think of the the song War Pigs from Marzy Osbourne. No, it talks about um how the cabal up top is making, you know, all the moves and the little guys, the soldiers, are the ones that are suffering yeah you know, and it's it's really sad, you know like I remember when I went to Cuba we 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 went and we um you know those those of us who had families were told, oh, you're gonna be gone for a month, and then my colonel finds out that oh, I can get my full bird colonel if I if I keep these guys here for six months. And we're we're you know we're the puppets, so we got to do what we got to do. But then we we got to notify our families and say hey, we're gonna be gone for another five months. You know which which was. Horrible for a lot of like the the married people who there's married people who are having kids and married people who, you know, like I I missed one of my cousin's weddings and that's neither here nor there because when you're in the military, you're theirs. You know, I know a guy that got an article 15 written up for getting a sunburn.
0: What's well, in Article 15? Because i are not familiar with the...
1: Being, being written up. Okay. You know, like, if you, if you messed up at work and you were written up at work, it's pretty much the same thing. Forgetting a sunburn. Because it was destruction of government property.
0: And is the training... <laughs> like, I mean, I'm just looking at from the movies because that's all I know of it, where they're just screaming. Is that the way it actually happens? That they're screaming as you're going through the the process of training
1: in basic training, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean how
0: yep. is that allowed like you know if that's done in in a corporation or whatever, it's abuse. How are they allowed to abuse people?
1: I think it's because they want us to be uh used to the shock. You know, and now that I think about it, it's weird. Because, like, when we were there, yeah, they were yelling at us and stuff. But then, when when we went to um, do self hand to hand courses, I re- I remember my my drill sergeant, drill sergeant Anderson. He spoke with a uh, Cajun accent, and he was he was from Louisiana, and he um, he came in the room. Pissed off once. And someone ever turned around and we're like, What's going on? It's like, You guys aren't doing the hand to hand training because they're afraid you're going to get hurt. Some of us are going to Afghanistan after this and they're afraid of us getting hurt. <laughs> but yet they're going to yell at us like that, you know, and shoot live rounds over our heads while we're in training. But they can't let us do hand-to-hand combat because they're afraid we're going to get hurt.
0: <laughs> and I don't know, is it a case of they do the yelling, they make you do what you're told. So then when they say, go kill them, you're so used to actually complying to orders that you're not really thinking yourself that they have you in such a kind of you know, mode that you just do what you're doing. And you just assume. And I think that's why a lot of the PTSD, it's it, it, it's like afterwards, you kind of just realize what when you get back, shit, what just happened?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, there's a lot of yelling and stuff in war itself. People are screaming, people are dying, people are this, you know. So I think that's why the psychology behind why they do that. But at the same time, yeah, it's a like I don't know how else they would prepare us for that. Yeah,
0: they should work on peace instead of war. Be the better thing because they create war. And I'm just saying that it's only America that does that because I know there's a few other, the British, oh, yeah, doing, yeah, it, yeah. doing it for you know hundreds of years. Like yeah, so.
1: I I definitely agree. I mean. I look at my my ten year old son. I look at my twelve year old daughter. I look at my nine year old niece, and younger in the family too. And I'm, and then I look at the news, and I see oh, popu- uh, possible nuclear war. I'm like, are they gonna have a life to grow up in? You know, is I it think, ever gonna? I t-
0: I think that's all fair tactics to bring. The vibrations down that you're all because the conversation in the household then becomes oh i don't let that come into me like it's like Mm -hmm. i I don't because they've done it before and you know people then live in fear so when you're living in fear you're not happy so then all the the traumas happen or they resurface and that's what they want
1: no at, at the same time yeah you're right i mean i actually commented the other day like Which is the fear tactic you're going with the uh, Armageddon or the nuclear destruction or the pandemic, you know, which, which one is it today? Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to go on it. I'm going to live my life the best I
0: can. That's that's
1: all we can do.
0: Exactly.
1: You know, if, if we do live in fear, then we miss out on a lot of life.
0: So just, just, finally with the with the books because you know you're obviously helping people you're going into different places to, to to help them and go through the process and you know you were saying sometimes it takes a year like it, is it broken down per kind of issue or does the, the different books you might kind of just touch on the different books i know you mentioned about the 11 houses uh, 10 houses in an 11 years but with, yeah. with the trauma ones as well like what's the kind of so people know uh, each book what, what exactly each one's covering
1: I got Operation Tip which is post-traumatic stress and trauma and then I have um, Enlighten which is about situational awareness um, surviving active shooter tra- uh, events that sort of thing And then I have Happy Mind, which is having a positive outlook on life. Then I have Awaken, which is about living. You know, it's about growth. It's about um, learning from the past and growing to be a better person. And then I have... One called Footprints. And that is about dealing with loss. Loss of a loved one. Accepting the loss of a loved one. Because I've lost over 20 significant people in my life. One very recent, a good friend of mine just passed away of cancer in August. And think that's all of them yeah
0: it's it's enough i know are you planning on writing more no
1: yeah definitely yep i'm gonna go ahead i've gotten many uh i'll call them requests for, for the uh the next part of my memoir I've gotten one lady who said that uh, it was a fantastic book, 10 Homes in 11 Years, but what happened with the rest of his life? That was a review, something like that. So I'm listening to your review, if you can hear me. (laughs) I'm I'm actually going to get together with uh, some of my old friends, and we're going to reminisce and get some stories together because a lot of my life with PTSD and I have traumatic brain injury too from that tank explosion that I was in but um a lot of my life I left like it's in a haze you know like I I told you I didn't speak I didn't speak for six months I totally forgot about that until I was talking to my sister about writing ten homes in eleven years. And she told me, Do you remember the do you remember when we first came home and you didn't speak? I'm like No. Like, yeah, you didn't speak to anybody, not even me for six months. I'm like That'd be a good thing to know. <laughs>
0: And I suppose just when you're helping others as well after going through this, that in itself, because I I feel it's like the mission then becomes bigger than you, which in turn makes light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Oh, yeah, this mission is like, this mission got bigger than me years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's, it's huge now. And yeah, you know, I, I, I realized how big it was this year when I started talking on podcasts and I'm talking to people in different countries. You know, I'm like for years I was just going around um different uh you know, different T V stations around my area and talking about my books and then the pandemic and I was like okay what am I going to do now? And then I found I um found uh places that I could find people on podcasts that want people for guests and I'm like oh okay that's where I'm going. <laughs> and now it's gotten so much bigger too because the world is just my worst now. You know? No, I think say,
0: podcasts are a great way to get your message out. And the fact that it's yeah. international is well. And I mean, even with my, like, each podcaster doesn't matter where they are. Cause, like, I mean, I'm based in Poland, but over 50% of my audience is American. But it's something like it, most of them are just like, I, I, cause I got five and some of them are in 137 countries. So you're really getting the message out.
1: <laughs> wow. I, I just really, uh, love it. I mean, like te- technology today, I can I can talk to you like you're right here, and you're in Poland. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, exactly.
1: It's awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, Charles, listen, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and uh, you know, I, you. I admire you for what you've done. You know that you've overcome such you know trauma and heartache, and you know now you've made it your mission to help others. So you might let people know where they can actually find you.
1: On uh, lifelongexperience.net, um, it's got links to everything, my social media, everything. There's one thing that I, I like to say on every podcast. Um, I talked about my suicide attempt. That was 20 years ago. My son is 10 years old. You, know, you do the math. If I was successful back then, not only would I not be here, but he wouldn't be here. You never know where your life can take you after your darkest hour you know so no matter how hard things get, keep on pushing forward beautiful beautiful
0: I love it. I love us yeah.
1: thank you thank you
0: perfect yeah i'll make sure i put the link because i mean you've got all the books in uh, your website as well so i'll put the link both on the audio and the video thank you very much charles
1: right. you're welcome Roy.
0: so that's all for the awakening podcast you'll find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org as mentioned we're you on bet you youtube and everything about me my other four podcasts and podcast coach can be found on bio.link forward slash podcaster sure to give us a thumbs up five star in really helps until next week take care